uh, it's a pleasure to be with all of you and to welcome our guest today, um, who's come all the way from Austin, Texas, to be with us, Dr. Doug Brinkley. Um, I want to thank so many people who helped make these things happen. Yeah, I need to have a Coke product. <laughs> <laughs> thanks to Coke. I'll start with Coke. Thanks to whether we like it or not, we have to serve you here at Ohio State. So that's a good thing. Um, but so many people make, make this possible, and it's, it's worth acknowledging them. Um, Laura Seeger, who's over here helping out with all uh, the tech on our uh, side, she's just amazing. Alyssa Reynolds, who helped out in arranging so many things. Amanda Boudreaux, who helped out with planning, and Sarah Beaumont White uh, on the back end of things, Amber Diglaw, who helped in development office, and Scott Levi, who believes in our environmental history program here and really has been so supportive from, from day one. So thanks to everybody who's helped us get to this point. Um, you have quite a resume, Doug, so it's hard to go through all of it. And I'll just mention a few things because he's, he's done so many amazing things. New York Times bestselling author, you know, has been a long time a CNN uh, history commentator. Uh, he's now the uh, Catherine Senoff uh, Brown Chair of Humanities at Rice University and teaching there, uh, teaching history, among other things. Rosa has so many different books on so many different topics. It's tough to try and figure out how to compartmentalize it from Rosa Parks to uh, Kennedy's American Moonshot to um, a uh, book about Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, and wilderness ideals, all sorts of amazing things. And today he's going to be talking about his newest book that came out in 2022, Silent Spring Revolution. Uh, and it just looks like an amazing book. Um, so we're really fortunate to have him here, but I'd be remiss with one last piece of his bio, which is that he's coming home in a way because he was a 1982 alum of not just any department, but of the history department here. So uh, let's give Doug a warning. It is truly is a homecoming for me. I'd be in this building and I have flashbacks when I'm in Dulles of conversations with Warren Van Tyne and Gary Richard and some of the professors. I'm so glad to see some young people, um, students or, or, uh, or environmental activist people here. Thank you guys for coming. Sometimes it's just the core faculty, all of you that are here. I'm going to let my son go, but my son, Johnny, we live in, I teach a Rice history professor, but we live in Austin, Texas, and both uh, Johnny and the Maroon um, there, Johnny Brinkley, has applied to Ohio State and has gotten accepted, so he's here looking at campus. <laughs> And his friend from high school, Westlake High, um, also Ryan has just gotten accepted in Ohio State. <laughs> listening to dad talk on the environment, um, letting them go wander campus, look at the quad, hit the gift shop and all. But thank you guys for stopping. Maybe I'm in the game tonight. We're going to um, Ohio State um, um, game. Um, well, here's the book, and I will simply say, um, I did a, I just recall, I did a, a paper on um, Joseph Wood Crutch when I was undergraduate, and I, he appears in this book, but I've written what's now a trilogy of environmental history. I did The Wilderness Warrior on the Theodore Roosevelt generation, and then one called Rightful Heritage about FDR, 
and now the third volume, Silent Spring Revolution. Um, so let me tell you about the other two. Just imagine all three in a row. You don't have to read them. They're independent books. But here's what my journey was. I, um, when we lived here in Ohio, Perrysburg, my mom was a high school teacher, ran the history department in high school. And my dad was a social studies, civics, history teacher. So I come from a background of teachers. Um, we had a Pontiac and a 24-foot Coachman trailer. And the, you don't get much money as high school teacher, but you do get some time off in the summer. And we would hit the road. And we would particularly aim to go to national parks, state parks, monument, wilderness areas. It wasn't glamping, but it wasn't real camping either. We would be at like KOA kind of, of, of facilities, but it was kind of in between. And um, I had asthma as a kid, and I grew up around Toledo area. I really had, I have to, had to sleep with the vaporizer, and I had uh, asthmatic issues. And um, so I read a book on Theodore Roosevelt, a children's biography, and he had asthma. And then I love all of these national parks, and wherever I go in those days, before, before the iPhone, as uh, 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 most of the people who remember, there are pamphlets everywhere, and I grabbed these pamphlets, and they all said Theodore Roosevelt created that spot. It'd be amazing, it'd be a Grand Canyon, Theodore Roosevelt, you know, it'd be a Muir Woods, Theodore Roosevelt, and, and, the, and you know, the Badlands, Theodore Roosevelt did that. And it was just amazing. And I had written a book on him and he had asked money, loved the outdoor worlds and loved animals because I always had a zoological bent. Theodore Roosevelt was president and he had 37 pets in the White House, which, which amazed me. He included a hyena that was given to him from Ethiopia that they kept there. He later gave it to the zoo. He had a pet badger that would run around the White House that's buried next to his site. He had parrots and, and dogs and snakes. And, and so when you're a kid, that's very Dr. Doolittle colorful stuff. I did forgot a lot about my childhood. I came to Ohio State here. I wanted to go into labor history. I got an article published as an undergraduate in the uh, Ohio Brotherhood and Carpenters of, of America Union book wrote an essay for, and that's really how I got to go to Georgetown for my graduate degree, because I didn't, I had it always in history, but I didn't do well in science classes, but I had a published article as an undergrad, you know, and uh, I got noticed, um, and, and so only when I had Johnny, you just met, and my own, I have three kids, I started wanting to take them to these parts and travel and think about the environment and, and all, and, um, I started writing The Wilderness Warrior and on that TR generation. Um, Theodore Roosevelt was born in 1858, and in 1859, Darwin wrote on the origins of species. Now, when you're fighting at Shiloh or Gettysburg or Antietam in the Civil War, how important is Darwin? Not to many, but to Theodore Roosevelt, it was epic. They were the leading family that was promoting Darwin in New York. Theodore Roosevelt's father was the chief fundraiser for the American Museum of Natural History based on Darwinian principles. And beyond the origins of species, young Theodore Roosevelt, some of you aspiring historians, I mean, I call it leavings, people leave things behind. 
the earliest things we have of Theodore Roosevelt was he draws Stork and saying um, Darwin's theory of my brother evolving, <laughs> and you know all these like eight year old things, but all about evolution and Darwin. Um, and of course, Theodore Roosevelt had a multifaceted career, but he basically was sick with asthma. He found a cure in his mind in nature. This was in New York City he grew up in that was industrialized. Horses would die on the streets. There was, there was dysentery. There was smog. There was everything. But when, and when he was sick, but when he got to the Catskills and especially the Adirondacks, he suddenly, his lungs cleared up and he felt like a million bucks. Um, I'm not promoting nature as curative as being real. There, I mean, uh, there's so much, uh, but I am sure that clean air and clean water contribute to to all of our uh, our needs, and it's what the whole environmental justice movement of today is anchored around. But um, he went to Harvard as an undergraduate and wrote his first book called "The Summer Birds of the Adirondacks." And then he went on to a storied career and wrote Beyond Being a President and the rest, Nobel, uh, you know, type of um, uh, a prize winner for mediating the um, Russian-Japanese War. TR, um, he wrote, out of the 37 books he wrote, many of them were about the natural world. He wrote very well. He was a fanatic about Henry David Thoreau. He is president when camping in the snow with John Muir of the Sierra Club in Yosemite. He brings John Burroughs, a big naturalist of the, of, you know, let's call it circa 1900 America. They went all over Yellowstone together and corresponded. And, and it's unusual, guys, being a president with Theodore Roosevelt that when he wasn't, when he said natural resource management's the number one job of a president and put conservation as number one. We haven't really had that since. We document about 234 million acres of public lands were saved by Theodore Roosevelt. How would TR save 234 million acres? What, what are the mechanisms for that? Well, as you probably know, a national park has to go to Congress. So once that Roosevelt did, like Crater Lake in Oregon or Mesa Verde in Colorado or Wind Cave in South Dakota, went to Congress, they got passed and moved to Senate and became a national park. But Roosevelt is important because in 1906, there was a very elastic piece of legislation called um, the Antiquities Act. And it's only this long, I can read it. Elastic because John Lacey, who authored the language, the aim, the spirit of the Antiquities Act was to save dinosaur bones and to save Native American pottery shards and pottery. Why? Because European museums, for, well, Stockholm and Munich, Paris, London, were coming to the American West and grabbing all this stuff, booty, for their museums. So elastic piece, and the big word here is science, for scientific reasons of precedent to declare an area, federal property belonging to the American people. It put it in, in human language. It, it, it said, if you find a T-Rex on land, it belongs to all of us. It's part of our, our natural history and, and of, the, of this landscape. And boom, it would get you know sequestered off like an archaeological dig site. 
the spirit of it was for an acre or six acres, maybe 16 acres. Roosevelt was livid that the Senate wanted to mine the Grand Canyon for zinc asbestos to come. And he famously went to the Grand Canyon, stood looking out at the abyss and said, do not touch it. God has made it. You will only mar it. Leave the Grand Canyon alone. They refused. Instead of giving up on the Grand Canyon, he ended up taking that Antiquities Act and applying it to its a million acres with a presidential proclamation, executive order. Everybody immediately screamed bloody hell that people like, how can you do that? And he said, well, I have the power as president. It says for scientific purposes, show me a better place to study erosion in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> this was considered BS and he got sued and it went through our federal court system and he wins. And once you have that mechanism, it allows a president like Barack Obama who, you know, to start that when the Republicans didn't want to do business with Obama, he could use the Antiquities Act, saving places, monuments Obama did, like the San Juan Islands of Washington, or he started using it for history sites, um, Stonewall for LGBTQ in New York, Obama did, Cesar Chavez's uh, United Farm Workers site out in California, Buffalo Soldier, Charles Young in here in Ohio, Obama saved it as National Monument, Harriet Tubman, Underground Railroad sites, plus large landscapes like Bears Ear in uh, Utah, which also got booted into the courts. But Roosevelt created this Antiquities Act mechanism. Um, uh, and he also created the U.S. Forest Service. When I did those family trips, and all you guys can pull up on your phone a map, just put National Forest in America, and they're nearly all in the West done by Theodore Roosevelt. He did 100 in like 15 one day. And Congress <laughs> went hell out. Um, and, 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 and in addition to the National Forest, which the, far, the National Park Service is in Interior, and the Forest Service is in Department of Agriculture, he then got worried in Florida there was a feathers war. Women that are here tonight, today to hear me, would have come to an event 100, you know, let's just say 1900 again, you would have come with a bonnet for a public hawk uh, and probably had an ornamental feather and a, or a dead hummingbird. And the ornamental feathers were being murdered and butchered in Florida because birds go on their rookeries, let's just say off the coast of, you know, Jacksonville or, or Vero Beach, and they congregate, they have their eggs, they're waiting for the hatch, they flap a lot, they don't leave because that's their, where they're defending. No raccoons get out there, no, you know, there aren't, the predators are minimal, except for human beings with all automatic weapons. And feather mafias would come to those rickeries and just slaughter all the birds, steal the eggs, the next generation, pick only the beautiful ornamental feathers and leave the carcasses to run. Theodore Roosevelt was presented with this going on in the Indian River in Florida. He had his lawyer in the White House lawyer, personal lawyer, two lawyers in Roosevelt. He asked the lawyers, what, what can I do? What, uh, what, uh, what, what if I declare an entire part of Florida a bird reservation? <laughs> And they said, well, um, it's, uh, I'm not sure that that's legal. You don't have that exact. He said, I so declare it. 
<laughs> that becomes the birthplace of U.S. Fish and Wildlife. If you go to Pelican Island, Florida today, you can walk a boardwalk and there are planks. We you all own 550 national wildlife refuges, starting with TRs in Florida. He then did for the first 51. And now today we're at 550. One of TRs in Alaska is the, the Yukon Delta is the size of West Virginia. And the key to the Roosevelt bird reservations were it came for species survival first. It was global in a new way of animal protection. Um, so these are some of the mechanisms. But that is what I call the first wave. It's a progressive era, the first wave of conservation. But for simplifying of a fun talk here, let's just call it the first environmental movement when the federal government's getting involved in environmental movement in this really serious the second wave is the progressive era of the Great Depression. Um, FDR worshiped Theodore Roosevelt. You realize resume-wise with Franklin Roosevelt, you know, TR had been, you know, went to Harvard. FDR went to Harvard. You know, TR, I might be mean. I'm just going to <laughs> the, um, TR, TR, um, TR, um, both from New York, TR went to Harvard, FTR went to Harvard. TR was the state legislator in Albany. FTR was state legislator in Albany. You know, FDR was a uh, or TR was assistant secretary of the Navy. FDR was assistant secretary of the Navy. Theodore Roosevelt was governor of New York. FDR was governor of New York. You know, Theodore Roosevelt lo loved big navies and conservation. FDR loved the Navy and conservation. Theodore Roosevelt had a niece named Eleanor Roosevelt. FDR married. <laughs> and, and, you know, so you're looking at Theodore Roosevelt's on the realm of conservation and the environment, and they're really large players because FDR, his whole life when he'd fill out occupation, he'd write tree farmer. His passion was scientific forestry. Uh, including working with the great Gifford Pinchot, who TR had worked with on uh, utilitarian use of resources, but FDR, avid bird watcher. I mean, um, uh, it, when he got struck with polio, Franklin Roosevelt, and couldn't walk, nobody wanted to be near him because he was a polio. You were afraid to sit by him because you'd get the virus. You know, you saw what we did in COVID with masks. Well, imagine you're got you're sitting next to somebody with polio. Oh, so this famous guy, 1920, Franklin Roosevelt was on the vice presidential ticket of James Cox as the VP for the Democrats. 1920 in Ohio is interesting because two Ohioans vie for president, Warren Harding versus James Cox. The FDR was the handsome VP, you know, all of this. And then a year later, he... He was at a Boy Scout tambourine because FTR did Boy Scouts <laughs> and um, went swimming with inner city kids in a pond at Bear Mountain along the Hudson River, contracted a some kind of polio-borne virus, and it manifested itself um, a couple days later, migraine, headache, sweating. He could not move the lower half of his body, and he would be infirmed. And, and handicapped for the rest of his life. He went back to his home there in Hyde Park 
on the Hudson River in New York, and nobody would visit. Guy was just VP candidate for president. Nobody wanted to be with the polio. He was written off. The only guy who hung out with him was Mansfield Crosby, the head of ornithology of New York State. And they went together bird watching through the Everglades and, um, and, and would do the bird checklist of how many they saw. And he found, he ended up buying a resort of, for people with polio thermal waters in Warm Springs, Georgia. Where, where he could be with other people with the virus. He, in the 1920s, in a wheelchair, his big nonprofit thing was pushing for state park movement. And lo and behold, the Great Depression, he's, he, he, he comes back to FDR, gives a big speech, and suddenly with the Depression and Hoover, he goes, runs for governor, he wins in 19, um, he wins in 1928, Two terms he used to be governor, wins in 28, I mean, two years, runs again in 30, wins. 1932, he runs on the New Deal for a president. And his big thing he's going to do is the Civilian Conservation Corps, taking unemployed men from the Great Depression. There was also women in a group called the CCT. But it was much smaller in scale. With that said, there's incredible new scholarship going on on the GTP. But, um, and they would plant trees. Do you realize from 1933 to 1942, the CCC and CCT and a couple other groups planted nearly 3 billion trees? Billion. Ohio used to be hardwood forest. Everything I just flew into Columbus, you just see it all. That used to be thick forest areas. Where I grew up around Toledo, it was the Black Swamp. It used to be a, um, uh, a natural world nirvana eating wildlife everywhere. I mean, Lake Erie, they could be one of the great fisheries of the world and the like. Um, and, and not only that, Roosevelt, as president, oversees the establishment. And it's hard to get to your mind around $3 billion in anything. Three billion trees, but he he's a progenitor of eight hundred state parks, and in fact, on D Day, June and on so many national parks, we don't have time for it. But on D Day, June 6, nineteen forty four, that massive invasion of Normandy. Do you realize where Roosevelt was June fourth and fifth, bird watching in Charlottesville, looking for new species? He wanted to be out of Washington so he couldn't be be. Um, detected to be nervous or something. Then he got back into DC and he kept his whole itinerary, what didn't cancel meetings because he didn't want to give away the invasion. You know what he spent the afternoon while our soldiers were invading Normandy? You know what FDR was doing? Sitting with maps of Big Bend National Park. He had got established that day with Eamon Carter and others to have a big national park on the Texas-Mexico border. And FDR aimed to create a massive two-nation park along the entire Rio Grande, where you're dealing with immigration and walls and all the day. Roosevelt envisioned it as an ecosystem to share, be shared by Mexico and the United States. The point is, these Roosevelts are really they don't do things wrong. I we can deal with uh, in those issues of it, but from a point of view of thinking of the environment. There are, these are two great progressive eras. The third wave, my book, Silent Spring Revolution, is the third wave. I thought the third wave was 1960 to 1973, 
I wanted it to be. My book <laughs> wouldn't have been as fat. Uh, I thought I'd begin with John F. Kennedy running for president and Angela Adams, great photographer, and Nancy Newall brought out a book called This is the American Earth and a great novel while Stegner wrote this wilderness letter. And the Democratic Party plank for the first time was talking about clean air and clean water and all. I thought I'd begin with 60. My, my early determination held correct to end it in 73. 1973, December, do you realize the Endangered Species Act that saves the bald eagle, California condor, alligator, manatee, on and on? The great Endangered Species Act, you know when it passed the Senate? 92 to nothing. That's how bipartisan environment came. And, um, uh, and in 73, that was it. It cost Watergate consumed Nixon, and the uh, Arab oil embargo occurred. There became cries for energy independence. The Arab oil embargo meant gasoline prices came up in the United States, and there became a counter-revolution on the right that created groups like the American Enterprise Institute, um, you know, um, the Heritage Foundation, um, the, um, you know, all of these kind of freedom caucuses, the Koch brothers industries, the Scapey brothers, there became extraction industry, oil, gas, people wanting to destroy the silent spring revolution of Rachel Carson and others. Um, so I was going 60 to 73 and I realized without a Roosevelt who wrote about the environment and nature all the time in one way or another, the true story began in 1945. And the first thing to realize about that third wave was Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The dropping of the bombs by Truman, incidentally, was not a conservation or environmental president at all, uh, or in any meaningful way. Um, but in the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs were dropped, and everybody cheers. Most Americans, wars over, VJ Day, we're coming home. One time in world history, dude, one country have a nuclear monopoly. USA, 1945 to 49. Only country in the world with the bomb. And so most people were celebratory. It showed American can doism. It showed the Manhattan Project paid off, you know, but there were some people deeply concerned about the atomic bomb. And they were a mixed group. Um, um, one that surprised the hell out of me was John F. Kennedy's father, Joseph Kennedy, went crazy when they found out Hiroshima was bombed and was trying to go see Truman and say, do not drop another bomb on a civilian population. We're gonna have, we're gonna be a, America will be morally judged forever as evil for doing such a thing. Um, many Catholics, uh, there was a movement, some bishops to say, no more, Hiroshima, stop. Um, William O. Douglas, a Supreme Court justice, uh, was climbing a mountain in his home state of Washington and was livid that when we used the bomb, he was almost the vice president for, instead of Truman. And he said it would have been a different world because if FDR had picked me and not Truman, and he was the runner up, in President Douglas, I never would have dropped a bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, but also in that mix was a, a man named Norman Cousin, 
who ran the Saturday Literary Review. And it was a big deal in its day, guys, the Saturday Literary Review. It was very red. Cousins was the first major writer. It'd be like David Remnick of the New Yorker now or something. Suddenly, right after Hiroshima Nagasaki, writing an essay called Is Man Obsolete? And said the atomic bomb is going to lead to the doom of humanity. And, um, and, and then Rachel Carson. He figured my book was very worried about the nuclear bombs. Now, Rachel Carson was from Springdale, Pennsylvania. She grew up along the Allegheny River. She was very um, disheartened that her childhood playground, the river, was polluted beyond redemption from blue factories, untreated sewage. Here was this spectacular river contaminated. But she continued to find joy in the natural world. She would write journals. She was an avid birder. She'd write about the secret lives of animals. Um, she wrote as a young woman for St. Nicholas Magazine and got her essays published. She went to a school, Chatham College for Women, which is Chatham University today outside of Pittsburgh. And there she met a professor um, who noticed Rachel's great writing ability and also love of biology, zoology, studying species, and convinced Rachel to marry her genius would be to marry both. Writing and being a, a, a naturalist, the Thoreau tradition, the Darwin tradition, if you like. And she wanted to see the ocean. She never did until she graduated from college. And she got a scholarship to Woods Hole in Massachusetts, which is right near Hyannisport, where the Kennedy compound is. And at Woods Hole was the Carnegie Hall and Harvard of Ocean Studies, particularly species and ocean conservation beachfront. He went there and fell in love because it had a red brick building filled with every book of marine life ever made, ever printed, maps, files on all every creature of the sea. And she knew she had a calling. And her first big interests were migratory eels. But she was amazed that an eel in a Pennsylvania river had made a journey from Africa. Everybody writes about bird migration, about these eel migrations. And then she went and did advanced degree in zoology at Johns Hopkins. She started writing for the Baltimore Sun columns on the natural world. During World War II, she got hired to work at U.S. Fish and Wildlife doing radio broadcasts. And she started in a, she embedded with the scientists at a place called Pawtuxet. Does anybody here know what Pawtuxet is? It's a good, good thing to know. It's FDR created it, it's in Maryland. It's where US Fish and Wildlife tests water on uh, ecosystems and species. Meaning you, if there's a new chemical, some company here is manufacturing in Columbus, they'll get it. And they're gonna test that at Paltuxan on how does it affect fish, birds, insects, humans. Um, how does it affect foreign fauna, that new chemical? Um, and she, we working with Pawtuxet, realized how horrible after Hiroshima not nuclear fallout was. That it was a game changer of poisoning the earth. And another so-called miracle of World War II 
you know, was uh, when FDR went from being Dr. New Deal to Dr. Win the War, we greenlit everything. It was unregulated. We got to beat the fascists. There was no regulation of something. If it could contribute to the war effort, greenlight it. And we greenlit DDT. Now, DDT, if you were alive, was a miracle in the sense that if you were Kennedy who served in the Pacific or Johnson who was in the service in the Pacific or Nixon, zillion others, you would get sprayed down with DDT and kill ticks, lice, mosquitoes, prevented malarial diseases. A man I write about called Barry Commoner, a brilliant scientist, public scientist, genius, ended up running programs at Washington University in St. Louis and later in Brooklyn. Um, but he would devise the spray mechanism of how you can aerial spray an island, say Guam, and kill all the insects. Um, Carson got the Paul Tuxton work, and the scientists were like, this is going to destroy the AIDS of birds, and it's potentially lethal to humans. And they had reams of data. She tried to write an article, a warning, a Paul Revere article, right after Hiroshima, that now DDT has to be investigated. Or Reader's Digest, and they killed her article. But she had all that info. And she went on to her career as a writer. She wrote three books about the seas, three ocean books. If you care, I don't know if you guys know what Library of America is, but it's the classics. They have black dust jacket. And it's like classic titles. All three you can get in one volume. I highly recommend you look at Rachel Carson's book, Sea Trilogy. Nobody's written about ocean life, seashore life, with the scientific exactitude and poetic flourishes combined of Rachel Carson. And these weren't minor bestsellers like three weeks on the list. I mean, she'd be 46 weeks bestseller. And she became almost a household name, Rachel Carson, on oceans. Um, you know, people thought of her as Demure, the ocean uh, scientist, uh, and, and she would spend much of her, she lived and worked in government, then got out to write her books. Um, but she, um, so keep these two strands in mind, anti-nuclear testing from 1945, Hiroshima, to 1992, when Clinton, Perot, and Bush ran for president. From 1945 to the United States detonated 1,054 nuclear weapons. Testing. We were blowing them up willy nilly in the back. Now, atmospheric testing after atmospheric test, and it wasn't just people getting sick that were Mexican Americans or people over the border or poor white farmers or Navajo, although all those groups got sick, it would blow far and wide. We were being, it was being detected as, as far as the East Coast. And, um, and so there became a movement, not only to ban DDT, but to ban the bomb testing. Rachel Carson's part of both. <laughs> and that ban the bomb testing got a lot of people. And one of the big ones who also was against testing of nuclear weapons, and it was Rachel Carson's hero, Dr. Albert Schweitzer, who was in Africa taking care of people with leprosy. It's controversial because there's a colonialist, paternalist side to some of his medical work. But 
He won the Nobel and went on Radio Oslo and denounced nuclear testing of Russia and the United States. Coretta Scott King became a leader of the anti-nuclear testing movement, saying with Morgan <laughs> Cousins who founded it. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, but he said it in many iterations. What good does it do for us to integrate a lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, if the milk we're drinking is contaminated with strontium 90? It makes no sense that basically public health and, and is, it affects everybody. And so it became a movement to stop nuclear testing. Now, a big thing happens on these fronts in the late 50s. Nobody of the, 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 most of the people in the back probably don't. Any of you guys back there remember Dr. Benjamin Spock? <laughs> no reason you should. I, I'm not, there's so much bandwidth we can have. But the people up here remember Dr. Benjamin Spock. He was a pediatrician who sold a zillion copies of a baby book. If you were to have a baby, you'd read Spock's How to Take Care of Your Baby. Well, his sister, Marjorie Spock, lived in New York, had a farm, and Marjorie Spock wanted to grow all of her produce organic. He was a big believer in the organic farming movement. And lo and behold, here she's running her organic farm in Suffolk County, New York, mosquito control, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture would take planes and blanket spray all of Long Island. And she now ha doesn't have an organic farm anymore. And she sues, and it works its way to the Supreme Court. And it's a celebrated case. Now, whatever you think of the case, you can see if you're a lawyer, I believe it it's pretty interesting. You know, where, what, what do we own? Where does our limits above end? You know, I mean, it's it's a, it's, it's fascinating from legal history. Um, but she loses that they're allowed to continue to spray the DDT, except William O. Douglas writes a brilliant dissent that gets widely distributed and says she has an American constitutional right to be an organic farmer. They cannot take that right away from her. Um, and, and, and why aren't these chemicals being investigated? Why isn't the science coming out, et cetera? Douglas, when he writes that dissent, just had a big home run in conservation. He wanted a road that was going 186 miles from Georgetown in Washington, D.C., the CNO Canal, from Georgetown to Cumberland, Maryland. They're going to build a highway, a roadway. And he said it needs to be saved as a walking, hiking path because of its scenic, historical, and recreational benefit. Douglas hiked the entire 186 miles. Uh, and he, the Washington Post was for the freeway, but they, he ended up convincing them to be against it. People joined Douglas's march. And lo and behold, even Eisenhower, President Eisenhower said, we're going to save it. He wins, a big win. Douglas got drunk about it. He went hiking <laughs> the rest of the dying days. He hiked the Olympic Peninsula to stop a road with Bobby and Ethel Kennedy. And one, 
He went to Kentucky to stop building of a dam uh, on a beautiful gorge uh, and, and won. He went to Arkansas where the gorgeous Buffalo River flows and people were putting barbed wire across the river to entangle kayakers and canoers. And, uh, and Douglas said it needs to be an undammed, free and pristine river and, and won. He's a, with no EPA, the EPA is not created until 1970. There is no Clean Air Act. There is no Clean Water Act. There is no federal sewage mandates. Douglas's Supreme Court office became a clearinghouse for environmental activists. We're, we're talking about Ohio conservation efforts, a sustainable program here at, at Ohio State could have gotten Douglas their packet of info. Stuff would happen. Uh, it's a great figure, Douglas. But meanwhile, Carson loved Marjorie Spock, and, Car and Spock gave Carson all the legal work, all of the stuff that the Supreme Court case. And then Carson had all the old DDT material from government. And then she still had insiders who knew what was really going on at Pawtuxent with DDT and other chemicals. And in the late 50s, she sits down to write the book that changed the world. Silent Spring, which comes out in 1962. She, right when she started writing, she found she had breast cancer. She went through chemotherapy, other treatments at Cleveland Clinic, Mayo, um, but her verdict was bleak. She knew she was going to die soon. She lost all of her hair and wear a wig. She was running against the clock, writing in Silver Spring, Maryland at her little house, and up along Rock Rim, the coast of Maine on the ocean, where she would do marine collecting. And her book, when she finished the manuscript, she let Bill Douglas read it. And he, he said, I'll sell the hell out of this. We're going to go after Douglas from the Supreme Court actually wrote a letter that said to a, a professor friend, I am going to go, I'm going to bend the law in favor of the environment and against the corporation. <laughs> that kind of raw language can get you thrown off the Supreme Court. <laughs> um, but that's how he was playing it. Now we have the ammunition of Silent Spring. And Carson loved John F. Kennedy. She campaigned for him. Jackie Kennedy knew her. Bobby Kennedy, RFK, went hiking all over with with um, Douglas. Justice Douglas took Bobby Kennedy all through Siberia hiking. In fact, Bobby got a hundred and four fever and almost died, burning up with fever. And Douglas put on his backpack and said, well, Bobby, I'm going to have to leave you here. This is where our roads part. <laughs> Hardcore Darwin survival of the fittest. <laughs> <laughs> Ethel Kennedy told me I wouldn't, I, Bobby never held against Douglas, but I wouldn't talk to him for years. I was so pissed he let my husband die in Siberia. <laughs> he was going to go on with his hiking and leave him in a hut with no medical attention. Um, and, and, but Douglas has great relations with Kennedy, JFK, the president, and the New Yorker publishes her excerpts in Holy Hell Road. She wasn't just going after DDT, the entire chemical industry complex went haywire because it was a gateway, the book, if you're going to regulate DDT, then you're going to regulate everything. 
and it's a slippery slope to people not dumping toxins into rivers, burial sites. You're going to be, you're inviting federal intrusion into the world of chemical companies. Um, and Kennedy, to his credit, at a podium at a press conference, when asked about it, when the New Yorker pieces came out, he said, "I've seen this Carson's work and research, and uh, and we're going to I'm going to have a panel, a scientific blue ribbon panel, look into it." And they hired the best scientists you could find, MITs, you know, Harvard types. And they found after their review that Carson was correct, that it really was this horrible for, for that the bald eagle was going to extinct, that shells were being thin, that it was creating all sorts of fertility issues for species on and on. But it doesn't get banned EDT, even though the, the Kennedy report came out from 62 when the book came out, it doesn't get banned until 1972. And when Richard Nixon agrees to ban DDT, you know, he didn't want to. He got cornered because the EPA, William Ruckel's house, the first head of the EPA, a Republican from Indiana, was an honest man. Ruckel's house said when he became first head of the EPA, he looked at all the evidence and said, out of here. And, and, and I were going to, if I'm going to run EPA, it's obvious this stuff's toxic. Um, well, the other thing Kennedy had in common with Carson was a love of the sea. I will ask all of you here, what's your Walden Pond? What place in the natural world do you love the most? Where have you had a spiritual revelation? It could be your grandmother's farm. It could be a state park. Somewhere in Florida or the desert. Or it could be just uh, sitting along the riverbank here, meditating in calmness. But there, there's probably some place that touched you. And, um, and that question is like, what's your wall? What's a place you would want to see protected or that you really felt the value of, the na of nature in, in your life? Kennedy loved Cape Cod in the ocean. He had a horrible back. He had Addison's disease, but when he went sailing in, in that wilderness of the Atlantic and all of its charms and beauty and magic, he was in his element. We call it blue mind. There are some people that only feel comfortable you know, by water features. Why so many people want to be by lake, be by river. They feel full when they're connected to water. Um, Lyndon Johnson's Walden, who I write about, is the Pedernales River in Texas, in the hill country at his ranch. Nixon didn't really have him. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I will talk about him in a minute. Um, but there's some good things you can say about him, as well as things you can imagine. Uh, but the, the Kennedy started fighting for seashore preservation. He did a big one, guys, Cape Cod National Seashore. Henry David Thoreau, beyond writing Walden, wrote a book called Cape Cod. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. And, um, and Kennedy did an amazing thing of getting Cape Cod pushed through because Cape Cod National Seashore is unique in the sense that cities like Provincetown, Toronto, Wellfleet are surrounded by protected zones in a very smart way that allows restaurants and parking and culture and housing, but also is intertwined with incredible. Um, you know, planning areas to protect the great dunes of the Cape and, and the wildlife and, and flora and fauna of all kinds. Um, the 
He also did Padre Island, Texas, Gulf of Mexico. Look at a map. You want to see how large it is? No, no condos, no Jerseyization, no boardwalks. He did Point Reyes, California. That's Marin County, right up in San Francisco. Beautiful country. These are expensive real estate. Yeah. Cod, Marin, <laughs> Gulf, Texas. Um, meaning Jimmy Carter, who could go to save a million acres of the Brooks Range, we have to just rock. Nobody wants to build roads, there's nothing to get there, there's not gold, silver, metal. But these seashores are tough to do. And Kennedy started fighting for all seashores and lakeshores. Combined Kennedy and Johnson, the other ones I mentioned, saved Fire Island National Seashore in New York. Cape Lookout in North Carolina, Assateague in Virginia and Maryland, uh, Cumberland Island in Georgia. I could go on and on. They went into the Midwest for the first time and said, why are there no special places saved on the Great Lakes? What is more beautiful than the Great Lakes region? And yet we're saving all these Western monuments and, and places. So they saved Hustle Islands National Park uh, up in Wisconsin, 22 islands. Um, Picture Rock on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Sleeping Bear Dunes by Traverse City, Michigan. Indiana Dunes by Chicago Gary. There was this seashore and lakeshore preservation movement that brought in a lot of great voices to it, like Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, um, the great environmental leader from Florida, like Carl Sandburg, the old poet from, you know, um, populist poet out of Chicago and North Carolina. Um, and so there were a lot was going on when Kennedy was president. He had the best Secretary of Interior. I know rankings guys are bogus in general, except when Ohio State's number one. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was, I'd say Stuart Udall was probably the greatest Interior Secretary, Kennedy and Johnson, um, during the 60s. Harold Ickes of FDR was great. Jimmy Carter, who's very ill right now, his, his interior director, Cecil Andrews of um, Idaho, is a very significant figure. But at any rate, Kennedy's shot in Dallas. December 63, gone. Rachel Carson dies of cancer in 64. And the question is, will this revolution go forward? Why is this a revolution? You all said Kennedy opened the door and all the greenies came running in. It's not that Kennedy burst it open and I'm like, he just gave it a crack of access to David Browers of the Sierra Club or, or you know, on the Rachel Carson of, of the Oceans, gave them a hole in their White House. Kennedy gone, Carson gone, there was a figure, who's, who, can Johnson do it? Is he really real? Well, Lyndon loved dance. He grew up on the FDR building dams, 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 and many of the dams were needed in great Tennessee Valley Authority of FDR. Grand Coulee Dam up in the Columbia River gave rural electricity, hydropower. But it is also true that by 1963, it was just pork politics. Every district wanted, you know, $50 million for an unnecessary dam. And what was happening is all of our rivers were being dammed, and, and we were, had no wild stretches of rivers anymore. And because Johnson was such a pro-dam guy, many environmentalists like, uh-oh, uh, what do we got with him? Well, it turned out what we got is, is two for one. 
His wife, Lady Bird Johnson, was an ardent environmentalist. And I hope you all realize how important she was on stopping billboards, saving roads as first lady. She um, would go down the Rio Grande River and raft trips. She went whitewater rafting in Idaho. She fought to save redwood groves. She, today, we honor her with her, her National Wildflower Center because she believes states should plant and protect wildflowers. She was the real deal, this lady for Johnson on environment. And Lyndon Johnson had a more Western cowboy male um, rancher mentality, which was, I judge my neighbor on how they take care of their property. Um, this is not enlightened environmentalism, Lyndon Johnson. But on the other hand, you know, he got it. And he liked Theodore Roosevelt. And he liked the idea, particularly of American beauty, saving American places. But Lyndon had no international, never saw the earth as one pulsing biological organ, you know, organism. Um, he was very chauvinistic about his American protection. But LBJ went on and did well in scenic rivers back in 68, saving stretches of rivers all over our country that are protected today in our heirlooms. He created the National um, Appalachian Trail and Pacific Crest Trail, our National Trail System, LBJ. He, with Udall, fought for some key components of our, our national beauty, Canyonlands and Utah National Park. North Cascades up in my Seattle, huge wilderness national park, um, Johnson. Redwoods in California, Johnson, I could go on. Um, he also did national historic sites, saving of, of homes and buildings. I think whenever you see one of those plaques on a building of national historic significance, it's that history consciousness coming out of the great society. Lyndon Johnson Voting Rights and Civil Rights Acts were the beginning of looking in Johnson on many quotes said things that would read very well to all of you today. Why are we dumping all of our garbage soot poisons where poor people of color were? Um, which we were and are. And Johnson was identifying it, pushing through Clean Water Act. So, um, but we don't honor Johnson as an environmental conservation president because of Vietnam. Meaning, how do you justify, okay, I'm saving a beautiful river in Arkansas? while well, I'm going to use Agent Orange and kill the entire jungle of Vietnam. Um, that's what, where he gets into to issues and hasn't been honored. So on one hand, he's not as great as FDR or, or TR. And then what he did do well, his wife is the progenitor of much of it. And yet he did do a lot, but it gets lost in the Vietnam narrative. Okay. Um, but we were lucky that we were, we, and at this point, the pesticide campaign, I'm writing right now, um, a, a reason I were talking about a baseball player, Hank Barron, and I was hesitating whether I'd be able to write on him a moment ago. I'm writing the definitive, hopefully, biography of Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers Movement with Dolores Huerta out in, and I'm going out March 1, 2, and 3, interviewing Chavez's brothers and sisters who are very senior. And Chavez deserves a lot of credit for the environmental justice. I don't know if any of you do environmental justice courses, 
or, or follow what that's all about. Many people begin it in the 1980s in Warren County, uh, North Carolina, and others, but it really begins with the farm workers in Chavez. They were first to ban pesticides, the United Farm Workers uh, in DDT. They, they were the first to actually put refuse to work land that had DDT. Um, and so he's part of the environmental justice movement and rural agriculture workers being poisoned. Martin Luther King gets killed at the Memphis sanitation strike on, on you know, garbage work. Um, there were fish kills all over going on in American rivers. I interviewed Ralph Nader, some of you may know, may not from my book, but you know, Nader, some people, Nader told me there's only one question all of you guys should ask. I said, what, one question? <laughs> And he said, really, it just all boils down to all of our problems. And he said, why shouldn't every river and lake in the United States be swimmable? And when did we give up our right to have clean rivers and lakes? When did we look at the river here and say, it's okay that we can't go in the water? When did that happen? How did that happen? He said, if you follow that, if you clean all the rivers and all the lakes, you would see so many problems start getting solved. But no, it allowed the and, uh, chemical companies um, and uh, phosphates, et cetera, just to be dumped, agricultural runoff, because we're not monitoring. Now, that's idealistic to keep rivers and lakes clean, but growing up in Ohio along the Maumee River, my mom used to yell at me, you can't eat that bass fish you caught. It's God's poison. And it almost became, you forget about it. Like, yeah, you can't eat it. You can't swim in it. You can't. Why? That's what Dan was saying. Why, don't we just, why can't we? Why aren't we demanding it as people? Um, the the um, Native American indigenous people in the 60s and 70s really got their message of land and water stewardship home. I write about many of those crusades, but the uranium mining and things that went on on, on on tribal lands is just heinous. I try to document that the best I can. Um, and you might ask, well, okay, uh, by 68, and I write, uh, you know, one of the other things Lyndon Johnson did was a wilderness act. The wilderness, he put aside 9.1 million acres of wilderness. Did anybody here know beyond the environmental historians, but somebody else, what, what is wilderness? It's an interesting question because what if you live in New York City, wilderness might be the Catskills. If you live in Catskills, wilderness might be the Adirondacks. If you live in the Adirondacks, wilderness might be the Arctic Circle. Depends where you're at. So it's a very difficult designation, but as Johnson did it, putting what he put 9.1 million acres, here's two eight million acres where no roads are allowed. Because if you don't build a road in two million acres, you're gonna have no logging, no telephone wires, no intrusions, no porta potties, no, no trucking, and it will stay <clears throat> pristine as much as it can with planes overhead and satellites and you know smog or whatever but it's it's a it's an ideal and we, we actualized it during that period of time and it continues today if you guys get a map and start just punch in when you need class wilderness with a capital w you'll be amazed how much land was done in the 60s to have wilderness we have today problem with climate change and species aren't staying in that wilderness 
they're migrating out of it. And so now they need new wildlife corridors to connect one wilderness to the other and there's a whole group of problems. But this did happen in the period. So here it is 68, Lyndon Johnson's not running for president. And Richard Nixon wins the Democrat, uh, Republican nomination. And Nixon, who cares nothing about the environment, uh, at least ostensibly, um, is the president of that, that. That was a big year in the environment, 68. Um, Stuart Brand did the whole earth catalog. Edward Abbey did desert solitaire. You know, uh, uh, these are like powerful cracks coming out and environments being talked about. But Nixon did something smart. He asked himself, who is the Republican enviro that I know? And it was a man named John Ehrlichman who went to jail for water. From Seattle, but Ehrlichman went to UCLA Law, moved back to Seattle, and ran a law firm that was basically a NIMBY law firm. If you were a wealthy community in Seattle, let's say, or suburb, an aluminum plant was going to be built near your house. Wealthy people would gather together, hire Ehrlichman's firm, and sue not to get the, the aluminum company there. Not in my backyard. It's funny when you get people with money, they don't want it near that. It's not Democrat Republican anymore. They unite. <laughs> you know, look, that's what Ehrlichman did. And he took Nixon came to Seattle in the early 62, and Ehrlichman took him on a boating trip to see how pretty it was up there. And Nixon hires him to be his environmental voice. So on the campaign trail, if a reporter said, Mr. President, what are you going to do about Lake Erie, Fisher, Donald, we'll talk to John Ehrlichman. I didn't know until I did the book that Ehrlichman was this David Brower of left-oriented radical in some ways um, of the Sierra Club called Ehrlichman a covert green in the White House. Because whenever you thought about Ehrlichman, he did get it. Got the problems that, that, that the youth movement was talking about, that uh, Rachel Carson, he understood it. How he navigated it, it could depend, but he... he, he it wasn't, he was a very smart person. And um, so Nixon gets elected. Everybody's convinced it's going to be a disastrous on environmental policy. Ehrlichman's there with him in the White House. And you know what happens only days? Nixon's in the White House days. Santa Barbara oil spill. I know you guys have just had your horrible blowing up of the train and chemicals and, um, and the rest here in Ohio. Well, the spill was dramatic. Television news went color in 1967. Everything was black and white. Now the nightly news was in color. And early 69, January, Nixon showed president in paradise. Beautiful Santa Barbara showing birds stuck in goo and, and you know, black waves of, of oil. And, um, and it was being brought to your living room. And Nixon sent his interior secretary, Walter Hickel, out there. And I'll tell you, Hickel was from Alaska, kind of populist, Republican. Um, but he gave Nixon some good advice. He got on the ground out in Santa Barbara, and he was noticing the White House was starting to minimize the spill. Well, it's not really that bad. Like you're getting here in Ohio, you know. And 
And Hempel calls the president and says, don't minimize. It's awful. Just tell the public it's terrible. We've only been in eight days. <laughs> We're not going to get blamed. It's the Johnson era oil lease deal, not ours for political cover, but it's just, you try to minimize, you're going to become the enemy. And um, Nixon listened to that. And then in the summer of 69, Ohio comes into play because the Cuyahoga River catches fire. Other rivers had caught fire. The Rouge River had caught fire by Detroit. But they didn't get Time Magazine coverage quite like Cuyahoga in Ohio. And Nixon was stunned because that it occurred right when Neil Armstrong was going on the moon. And suddenly time is giving this much coverage to rivers on fire. And people were blaming Nixon, your president, you know, be Biden today, five rivers caught fire. What are you doing, Joe Biden? <laughs> you're, you're, you know, it's just the way it is. And Nixon's like, I'm not the dirty river guy. I've only been here months. Now these rivers are on fire. So he, he woke up. And then Gaylord Nelson, the senator from Wisconsin, who, who was the founder of Earth Day, the first Earth Day, 1970, he was, there were Vietnam protests going on, T-Chins, and, <laughs> and Nelson gets the idea, the center of Wisconsin, we're going to hold an environmental teaching. And all the college campuses, Ohio, where we were just talking, he was at Purdue, for the, right? He just gave me a pen of, he was at, our, at the first Earth Day at Purdue. But it, it was everywhere. And Nixon smells a rat. Uh, first Earth Day's coming, April 22nd, 1970, and they're all going to blame me. <laughs> Paranoid. And also a very smart politician. And so he makes a deal with Ehrlichman and, with, uh, and he tells Ehrlichman, the environmental guy in the Nixon White House, look, I'll sign far-reaching legislation as long as Ed Muskie, the Democratic senator of Maine, gets zero credit. Nixon, the man who kept Enenbe's list, hated Muskie more than anybody. Muskie was going daily on television or wherever he could find an audience denouncing Nixon's Vietnam policy and calling Nixon a polluter. He was running as Mr. Clean Air and Clean Water. I mean, and, he, and Nixon was convinced it was going to be who ran against him, Muskie versus Nixon. So he tells early men, I'll work with Scoot Jackson. And don't worry, no reason people in the back there will know Henry M. Jackson, a powerful senator from Washington, a Democrat who was for the Vietnam War, told Nixon, I'm not, never criticized Nixon's war policy, yet was a conservation slash environmental senator who had pushed for the North Cascades. And as you all know, Washington environment's pretty robust. Salmon runs and, you know. Um, and so he had a great staff, Scoop Jackson and Dingle, of uh, Congressman Dingle of Michigan cobbled together a document that is the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA. Do you know that the National Environmental Policy Act it's signed by Nixon, January 1, 1970, at San Clemente, California, in his Western White House. NEPA's a revolution like Silent Spring, the book, because NEPA, with Nixon going on along, demands if you're building something, you've got to have an environmental impact statement. You know how big that is? 
you want to see how that gave birth to environmental law? You know, if you're at Starbucks and want to build something along the river, what's your environmental impact statement? You know, you're the federal government and you're wanting to build a National Guard compound. What's the environmental impact? It almost by definition gives birth to environmental law. It's no longer, you guys are at Ohio State majoring in environmental science studies. It's not just that you're working for the National Park Service or state. Well, you might get hired by a company working on environmental impact statements. Nixon did it. Nixon's State of the Union uh, of 1970 was about a third on the environment. Earth Day came. Nixon thinks it's a pinko commie plot. <laughs> He's still paranoid about it. And he is so, but he, he decides to play his hand this way. I'll plant tree on the White House with photo op with my wife. We're tree planting on Earth. That'll go out. And he gave all of Interior Department, the National Park Service, et cetera, Fish and Wildlife, the day off to take part in educating the public about nature and the earth. Sounds reasonable. But he also has the FBI do illegal wiretaps and domestic surveillance on all these dude groups. And, um, and he, the FBI blankets far and wide. But what, what they were worried about, the FBI and Nixon, was that the funder of Earth Day, the recent Earth Day shops came, colleges, suddenly you guys would have uh, quarters and for Earth Day at different campuses because Walter Ruther was paying the bills, the head of the United Automobile Workers. And um, Ruther um, dies days after Earth Day in a plane crash. Uh, odd part missing in a plane. But um, the point is, Nixon now weathers Earth Day. All the report came back, and it's it's a hilarious FBI and Pete McCloskey, Republican congressman, and Ehrlichman are laughing because they have to tell the boss Nixon there was some um, there was some smooching and some fondling and some frisbee and some dogs were running and I smelled we smelled some pot. That was it. <laughs> Nixon gets a bit reassured by that to the sense that he's thinking, okay, well, I'm now getting some, I feel I'm getting street cred. I'm not the demon of all this stuff. And, and he creates the EPA in the summer of 1970. Nixon does. It opens its doors December 1970. Nixon goes and signs the Clean Air Act that we're living by today. He does Marine Mammal Protection Act. Um, he does all sorts of bills to protect oceans. He takes military grounds and calls it legacy uh, places for wildlife to thrive. He creates things like with the Sierra Club, Nixon does um, Golden Gate National Recreation Area in California, Gateway National Recreation Area in Jersey, New York, a lot. But um, I mentioned where I began that in by, by 73, you have the Endangered Species Act epic 92 to nothing, Democrats, Republicans, TR types with liberals mixed with even conservatives like Walt Disney is a conservative in the mix. All these people wanting to save the planet and it dies after it. By 74, gas, inflation, petroleum, it all kicks in and the revolution peters out. 
Um, it does. It has moments with Jimmy Carter, who is now sick, as I said, who created super fun sites for toxic ways to create FEMA Carter. He put aside you know, 56 million acres of Alaska, the size of California for Alaska parklands. It's still in the mix, but by 1980, when Ronald Reagan wins, it's over, guys. All of the, the real fighting environmentalists, <clears throat> Frank Church of Idaho, Hubert Humphrey, Minnesota, Eugene McCarthy, Minnesota, George McGovern of South Dakota, um, uh, these guys lose with Reagan sweeping the map. And from 80 to today, um, we have been looking for a fourth wave. It almost came the fourth wave when Al Gore inconvenient through climate change. The fourth wave is going to be climate driven, getting off of fossil fuels, but it's harder than the others. It's global. You have to have China and India. And what do we do? Where's the leadership? I don't know if it's going to come from the federal government. You're not going to get 92 to nothing. The Republicans are trying to undo NEPA, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, let alone expand anything. So you're, you guys are in the fourth wave. It's like this in the federal government. So it might, the brightest signs are individual state legislatures, just in Rhode Island, who's taking the lead because they're about to lose all their shoreline. The climate rebel, they just destroyed Little Rhode Island. They built the biggest wind farm offshore in the world. CBS, the pharmacy company's headquartered there. It's the fifth largest company in the world. They're starting to maybe do away with plastics or their drugs. And also, there's a lot of inner, and they're trying to be a hotbed in Rhode Island of innovation at Brown University and places. California, under Gavin Newsom, is saying by 2035, no more fossil fuels. Um, it's being sold in the state. No more vehicles that take fossil fuels being allowed. Same Washington state. Meaning blue states might go ahead on their own. It's not the same as federal policy, but I think that's one of the, the areas to keep your eye on. Uh, and meanwhile, the fourth wave is Generation Z. It's young people. And baby boomers don't have to be criticized. And because we didn't do enough, but we did do the EPA and endangered species, clean air, clean water. You wouldn't be able to breathe in LA or Cleveland, the smallest of that. We, we made strides forward. But the pressure of going backwards and the global stress of us being only 6% of the world's population in America using up 35% of the natural resources, it's unsustainable, as you all know. Uh, but I have no answer of where that fourth wave can kick in, except the education that took place in the 60s. People do do earth science, environmental law, ecology. You know, Greta's book coming out right now is like number one. You know, there still is a hunger going on there. And uh, and so you live in hope. I'll end by telling you, I learned from this book with David Brower and other names I'm throwing at you, Rachel Carson, never lose hope that you can fix a problem. And they used to say in the 60s, when that first Earth Day created songs like Marvin Gaye's Mercy Media Ecology or Neil Young or Pete Seeger, Save the Hudson River, or Save the Well, have fun. I, I, that's a big lesson I took from it. They have fun saving the world. Laugh, have parties, enjoy it. You can't live like, oh, doomsday's here. Uh, don't get yourself sick over it, but get organized, get out there, group together, talk about things. If you can't dedicate your time to the environment, very few can, do little things. He's riding his bike to school or, or 
something like I'm going to adopt a state park and just be a friend of the park and go to a couple meetings and do you know two hours of work on dealing with nature. If enough people start percolating like that, when the moment hits in history, there'll be an informed and educated public ready to demand that we get off of fossil fuels and prioritize climate change as, as the existential threat of our time. Thank you all. A couple of minutes for questions. Um, it, in one little uh, thing, we, if you wouldn't mind, promise you we're not gonna mass mail you uh, emails. We just, uh, if you would sign in as you leave, it helps us with uh, stuff in the department. Also realized I was so excited uh, introducing everybody, and I know most folks. I'm Bart Elmore, uh, an environmental <laughs> historian in the department. Nice to, to have everyone here. And for folks on Zoom, we'll also try and get your questions. Uh, we have about 15 minutes here, so we'll start in this room and then see if we can get to some of the Zoom questions. Yeah, John. Um, I'm John Brooke. I'm an environmental historian still in this department. Um, I was thinking about the fourth wave book all the way through, particularly when, when I was waiting for you to make the shift from conservation to the systemic poisoning. Okay, that's that's the key break, you know, 1945 to 1965, 73. So then then I'm waiting for the fourth the fourth wave. And okay, so you're doing you're doing uh Chavez, that's great. That's that's an important maybe that's the fourth book, but the fifth book, the fourth wave book, um I, I really expected you to end in the last three or four minutes talking about the amazing presidency of President Biden. Why isn't President Biden the equivalent to FDR, PR, um, and JFK, and, and, uh, and LBJ? In other words, the CHIPS Act, the, the series of three bills, massive, gigantic amounts of money on the line for that is going to drive already the private sector is moving. So I can see this amazing book if you have to write in the same, <laughs> in the same tone, in the same frame, you know, this, this, this uh, you know, uh, Americans acting, but now Americans acting on the other thing. So let me, let me just leave it at well, that. I agree with you on your assessment of Biden completely. Um, the problem is for, uh, or the craft to be a historian, though, only are good as our documents. I mean, uh, that's why most environment people are like Bill McKibben or some a journalist that's working that front. Uh, I look in for archives. So I know we don't have the Biden archives, so it would be a polemic. Um, it, it would be a front book do, and we don't know. He's so in mid-journey. I mean, he may be yeah. out in two years, and there'll be rollbacks of a lot of this stuff. So you don't get the clarity of what sticks or what doesn't stick. But I'm with you in the sense Biden has been very, um, very good on on uh, this and, and on the complete agreement. And I, I think he deserves more credit than he's been getting. On. So a quick follow-up. How long would it take before one could, just, could be confident enough to write that book? In other words, it's, well, it's an issue for the younger generation. He's there two years and it's sticking. And by the time you write it, it'd be three. And is he a one-term president or two-term president? Um, but every day is great journalism. You're trying to you know, journal on these articles you gotta find in the journalism world. But uh, I try to avoid writing about contemporary figure now. Yeah. So I did it with the Hurricane Katrina book because I was living in New Orleans and everything got shelf-stopped. And, but I, it was a, more of an act of journalism than it is an act of history. 
Anyone else? Yeah. First of all, thank you for writing the three books. They're really powerful. Um, what, you, what do you think the future of national parks is? Would there be a movement to expand them or are we kind of at a holding point? I think we're at a holding point. Um, first off, a lot of the plans work that you know, have been preserved, um, but more controversial, more difficult is the story of, uh, of appropriation of native cultures and what are these parks looking at, uh, and you know, magazines like The Atlantic and others have been questioning you know, some of the, um, the aspects of park. For example, John Muir, the great promoter of the national parks now, has been um, really downlisted at the Sierra Club because of Muir's comments on race that in an era right now that we're living in don't hold up. And, uh, and so it's in this sort of transitional period, but the public loves the parks. And um, I think it's bipartisan in a sense, but things are changing. Each park's different, like go to Joshua Tree, you want clean energy on the California desert, the wind farm is there and solar, but it's the solar is sucking in the sun and killing all the Joshua trees. I mean, these things are complicated in, in a world that's so heavy grappling with hyper industrialization and the fact that climate is here, mega floods, mega droughts, you know, an age of, of massive extinction of species. So, um, you know, it's doing posting staff parts right now. Uh, while important in our day, it's still amazing for outdoor recreationists and the like, um, isn't tackling these big issues, you know, of um, energy consumption. And, and, but I think our park system is, is vibrant and will, is still a major component of the U.S. It has more support from the public than a lot of federal programs do. They're like the armed forces. Most people love the armed forces or soldiers. Most people love the parks. And you know, yes, there's big fight. Should guns be allowed in national parks? You know, as a Second Amendment issue. And there are all sorts of fights going on. And by and large, we we think of the Grand Canyon as our Taj Mahal. We think of the Tetons as our Louvre. We think of, um, you know, Shenandoah Valley as Westminster Abbey. Uh, meaning these are parts of American pride that I think transcend the partisan divide to, to enough of a degree uh, to keep, keep it, keep the system going. With that said, out in Utah, people want the parks given back to Utah. Uh, there are enemies of the park services, federal government overreach. Yeah. Um, in your book, can you indicated that you admire David Browder of the Sierra Club a lot. I'm wondering what your reaction is to the naming of Ben Jealous to, to his role. Well, ben Jealous is now the new head of the Sierra Club and, and, and I think an extraordinary enlightened choice. Um, Brower, though, was amazing in his day. I mean, he was a, a grew up in Berkeley, um, could identify rare butterflies, became an alpine hiker, skier, served in World War II um, with the um, groups like, I think it was the 10th Mountain Division. Came back and started Brower as the publicist for this there club, put photographs. I don't have time for it today, but a lot of things get saved by photography. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt used to say, if you want my husband to save a landscape, bring in photos. And sure enough, 
Time and again, people would get a meeting and show photos, and he would say, well, we'll declare it a park. It was a different America back then. You could do big things like that. And, uh, and I think movies, documentaries, and all moved people. Uh, and, and, um, and so uh, Brower was the real progenitor of, of emotionally attaching people to photography and motion pictures into a campaign to save something. So somebody did an incredible Lake Erie film of how it's dying to show what it could be and this and got it last widely distributed and brilliantly made. Brower believed there was an advantage to win over recruits. And, um, and he created a book series and but he quit the Sierra Club in 68 and created a group called Friends of the Earth and other nonprofits because Brower thought by let's call it 69, that we had to go global, that we did a lot in America that was really positive, but without a look at global, um, the global issues of conservation of wildlife and forest and the rest, and the, we, were, uh, we were missing a step. Ron Dullins, who was the congressman from, a, a big person, big group in environmental protection was the birth in 1971 of the Black Caucus. And that really started, there's a funny crossover from ourselves. Ron Dellums, uh, considered a radical socialist congressman from Oakland, uh, was pushing for David Brower to win the Nobel Peace Prize at the Sierra Club. It's a different era, guys. <laughs> but I like him as a choice for, the for now. Um, but, you know, we just started and we'll see what happens. Hi, I'm Jim Harris. I, um, I teach the Global Environmental History course pretty often here. And we end the course with the environmental movement. And you've told so many awesome stories here, but I look forward to reading the, the very fat book. But do you have a favorite story? Like if I could only assign, let's say, one chapter of your book to a six-week course where we have one day on environmentalism, what's your favorite story that you, you tell in the book, do you think? It's a hard question. I don't, uh, I, uh, I don't it, there's so many. But, you know, I think, do you guys, some of you remember there used to be on television advertisement, public services, Iron Eyes Cody. It was a Native American that was crying and looking at garbage in a river, in a dirty river. It was a powerful public service announcement that went everywhere. Uh, Iron Eyes Cody, because this commercial got a star on the Hollywood Walks of Stars and all this, and it was seen as the Native American or Indigenous people's connection to the youth counterculture environmental movement and all this. It turned out Ionized Cody's was from was Sicilian and not Native American and grew up in Louisiana and had worked with like John Wayne and people in some movies and was put um, they turned him into a um, in a minstrel like way into um, this uh, Native American spokesperson on keeping things clean. So you know, things like that are always shocking, you know, when you see, when, when you, you know, see things like that. Also, um, I would say, you know, I had always heard um, overall the Lady Bird Johnson's, um, you know, love of the outdoors, but I, she wrote about it really well, and it, it, it was quite remarkable to me how, how well versed she was, uh, and in my esteem for her rose, I always thought it was Eleanor Roosevelt and the rest. And I see what Lady Bird Johnson's, um, you know, her crusades uh, were, were quite memorable. 
And just for time, I think we'll do one last question and then uh, we have an intimate group. We can come together and talk afterwards. So, yeah. Um, I was going to ask you had mentioned how like everybody has a Walden or like a special piece of nature to them. Um, I was just wondering like maybe what your Walden is and what piqued your interest well, in environment. You, what was yours? Did you think of one? Um, I grew up on Lake Erie, so mine was just like there's like a beach that's kind of like shut down, but you can go, you can like hike to it. And that is it by the bay or the Ohio? No, um, it's a it's a small town. It's kind of hard to like. Do you know Geneva on the lake? Yes. Yeah, it's Madison. It's like right oh, next uh, to me. That's there. a great one. Why about a few more people? What guys? Any of you in the back rows there have a Walden or a place that you speak to you? Feel free to say Dulles Hall. <laughs> Um, it's a bigger one, but Yosemite National Park. Yeah, well, in Yosemite, uh, you know, it's just, uh, well, if you ask the interesting story, Yosemite Kennedy went there, and they used to, in Yosemite, do a firefall at night. They would shoot fire down the, the whole thing. It was a big controversy, like, why are you taking a water, bringing fire embers in a dry area? cascading down in a Disney effect with spotlights on it and oohs and ahs. And when Kennedy came to visit, he wanted to see that, but Ansel Adams, the great nature photographer from Yosemite, boycotted, even though he loved Kennedy because he wanted to make a message to get rid of that, that ticky-tacky commercialization, and, and, and they did. But it's pretty hard, hard to beat Yosemite, and I was worried this summer wildfires when you see what's going on out in Sequoia National Park and the greater, you know, the Seventy Valley, et cetera. Who else? Just for fun. Yeah. So I grew up in Columbus across the road from OSU's Don Scott Airport uh, back in the days when the fences weren't very high. So we would just spend all Saturday in rubber galoshes tromping through the stream. And Wendell Berry talks about the, the creek that you grew up in. That's the creek that I grew up in was that stream that goes through OSU land over by the airport. I love Wendell and... Berry, by the way. Yeah. It's, what if you had your hand up too? What was your... uh, Gibraltar Island, which is where Stone Lab is, um, which is always used like play of ground uh, lab or whatever. I went on a school trip and it was just so beautiful. Oh, um, well, great. I'm glad that idea, the point of it is you suddenly are all getting, we're humanizing a lot of, and sometimes environmental thing gets very like, uh, when you start thinking about places and then you talk to friends about it and all, and you start, I think, finding some common ground that we all have these treasure places. Anyone else back there? Yeah. Cuyahoga Valley National Park. There's a, there's a remediation story, right? I mean, after the Cuyahoga River on fire, the ability to, to try to create a park and it did there and, and uh, with some uh, great success. It's very beautiful. Do you spend time there? Do you live near there? Yeah, I grew up like 15 minutes away from it. So I went there like all the time as a kid. In that park, white, the Cape Commerce so sort of intersected with communities. You can just walk right from your house right into the park. Yeah, that's a great one. Anyone else? I'm just enjoying it. That's all. <laughs> um, I like A.W. Marion uh, State Park, which is in Circleville. That's my favorite one. Where is that at? Uh, Circleville. And I don't know that park, A.M. Marion. A.W. A.W. Marion. Yeah. Let's see, two more, and then I'll give you mine. Two more. Yeah, I grew up around the Cleveland area, so Rocky River Reservation of the Cleveland Metro Parks. That river, I, it's about 15 minutes from my house, and I'm there all the time. Oh, good. How many of you are from Ohio in here? 
Anyone else? One more, and then I'll take mine. Hocking Hills. Hocking Hills is amazing. I'm going to Hocking Hills after the stock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think mine is um, um, is the, is parts of the Great Smokies and Pisgah National Forest, the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains, Appalachian around uh, North Carolina, close to Asheville, North Carolina. When I was a kid, we'd go there right It's when you were young, and I would see all you know, flex salamanders and just you know. I was in awe of that feeling up there in the Smokies. So it probably becomes my uh, my supreme one in Ohio. I always worried, I almost bring tears that the river I grew up in, the Maumee, is so polluted and so horrific. And I keep thinking I'm getting of the age I need to do something about it, looking to join a conservation group or what somebody, a watchdog. Um, the Toledo Blade, a couple of environmental reporters on the with are uh, trying to keep their eye on it, but it's a it's a tragedy because it's a beautiful river. All right, guys, thank you.